0: Hello, this is an MLS Aces exclusive, and I am the same host with a different name. My name is Riley James. Um, I'm the same guy. Riley McManus was my um, name I I last went by, but Riley James is the new name now. I'll explain on this week's show coming up why I switched it, but uh, I'm Riley James, this is an MLS exclusive, it was really good, it was Ken ben Singer. he has a book coming out called Red Card. We talk about it a lot, and I'm excited for you guys to hear it, so without dragging on too much about um, why my name is different, I'll just let you get to the interview and you can listen to um, episode 65 of the MLS podcast. So yeah, hope you enjoy this, it was really good, Ken's a really nice dude and um buy his book june 12th red card you'll you'll hear us advertise it buy his book on the line with us today is a man who is in los angeles california who is talking to me through trying to take care of his children um ken bensinger has a book and before i get into this book kind of want to introduce you as the person. because Sometimes we, we, we get way caught up in what you're trying to sell that we lose who is Ken Bensinger. Uh, you've worked for the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and now you work for BuzzFeed. So, I mean, you've been all over the place. You graduated from Duke. You've done a lot of things, and you're very impressive with your career thus far. So you decided to write a book, and... Roger Bennett is the dude that turned me on to this book. He tweeted about it. It's called Red Card: How the U.S. blew the whistle on the world's biggest sports scandal. Ken, I appreciate you making time, man. And uh, how are you?
1: Oh, I'm great, and uh, and very uh, uh, pleased to be here, and, and flattered you'd you invite me on your show.
0: Yeah, this book is is fantastic. From what I hear, I've, I obviously I have not read it yet because it comes out June 12th. But from what I've gathered, talking to people that have had access to the book Uh, it is brilliant you obviously we've talked about pre-show i want you to kind of give the background on on the on all the chuck blazer and all the american uh, side of this story but it's kind of amazing that you're you're able to provide this point of view that not many people have so uh what was the idea behind this book why did you write this book and how did your past experiences kind of help you write this book
1: so uh this book is the is the product of prior reporting on soccer um and uh you know i was presented with an opportunity based in some previous work i did to do it and um <clears throat> sometimes uh people get something out of left field they never worked on other times it's a, it's a beat that a reporter has written on or covered for years and years Um, And sometimes it's in between. I'd say that's that's where I'm at. Um, I'm an investigative reporter, um, and I've covered a a wide range of topics over the years. Everything from the auto industry to um, to uh, human trafficking um, to uh, environmental issues uh, to to subprime lending—a wide variety of things. None of that related to sports, but I've also done some sports things. I did some uh, some data-driven looks at um, brain injuries um, in the National Football League and other sports and um, workers' comp claims related to that. Um, and I've done uh, some things about some college basketball recruiting scandals and uh, so a variety of different kinds of sports investigative reporting as well. Um, and when I started my new job at, at BuzzFeed, I got the opportunity to um, write a big profile of Chuck Blazer. Um, Chuck Blazer, as your audience, a lot of them will probably know, was the, was sort of, maybe you might think of him as the godfather of American soccer. Um, he was the most powerful American soccer official, perhaps ever, certainly in many, many, many decades. Um, he was the, uh, the General Secretary of CONCACAF, which is the, you know, the confederation that, that <coughs> excuse me, oversees all of uh, North and Central America and the Caribbean, um, you know, which includes the U.S. and Canada and Mexico, and et cetera. Um, he was general secretary of that, which is the number two position and for, he was there for about 21 years. And, um, for the last, oh gosh, um, uh, doing the math of my head, 14 or so years of his career, um, he was on the FIFA executive committee, which, um, no longer exists in that exact form, but at the time was the, um, the most powerful committee within FIFA and thus the most powerful soccer committee in the entire planet. Um, And uh, he had an instrumental role in lots of development uh, of the sport in this country starting in the late 70s through the 80s and and up until when he left soccer completely um, in 2012, 2013, that time frame. In 2014, I wrote a profile of him um, because an ironic aspect of his life is that he um, wasn't really well known within the U.S. A funny thing about a man with that much power is that in almost any other country in the world, because of the predominance of soccer, uh, he would have been a, a nationally famous figure, um, sort of, you know, constantly um, barraged by media and the kind of person who couldn't sort of eat out without attention. Um, but uh, because soccer is, you know, still not one of the top three sports in terms of viewership and popularity in this country, he lived somewhat anonymously, which is even more startling because if you ever saw a picture of Chuck Blazer, it's kind of hard to imagine that type um anywhere. <laughs> he was a, you know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. This is right. a man who was about pushing somewhere between four and 500 pounds. And it, huge... it, if you Sorry. don't
0: know Chuck Blazer uh, and you're listening to this, Google Chuck Blazer.
1: Yeah. Hit pause and Google. Because, <laughs> because it's, it's, uh, it's an
0: interesting thing to look at Chuck Blazer and, and think about the things that he did.
1: It's true. For, <laughs> probably around 450 Huge white beard, huge curly hair, big thick black eye, salt and pepper black eyebrows, and um, his rosy cheeks. He really looks like nothing so much as Santa Claus. Santa Claus, um, he,
0: but a few extra hundred pounds.
1: Yeah, like a like an, an out of shape Santa Claus. Triple XL <laughs> Santa. <laughs> and this guy, he got he got had so many weight problems, other health problems. Much of his later part of his career, he would roll around in a scooter rather than walk. So it gives you a sense of this guy. It's, it's amazing when he would actually escape scrutiny. And I um, had heard about him through, through a previous editor of mine who was interested in soccer in particular, particularly in a guy named Jack Warner, who was Chuck Blazer's sort of closest partner in crime uh, over the years. And um, that person, that editor said, you should look into this Jack Warner character. And when I did, I inevitably came across Chuck Blazer. And I thought Chuck Blazer was fascinating. And convinced my editor to let me write a profile. So I wrote a 9,000 or so word profile of him that ran in uh, the very outset of June 2014, which would have been right as the last World Cup in, uh, in Brazil was starting up. And I was very pleased with that it went pretty well. I thought it was interesting. I got a lot of new facts about him that no one had ever published. Um, and then moved on and moved on to a different topic and it was a non sports topic and got with another reporter, got heavily engrossed in that and, uh, and kind of had. Hadn't forgotten about the Blazer story, but sort of put that as an old chapter in my life. Well, about a year, just under a year after my article ran, the entire soccer world was, was shaken out of bed, <clears throat> so to speak, by the news, news that, um, at the U.S., uh, Department of Justice's behest, um, Swiss police had, in Zurich, had arrested a bunch of top FIFA officials early in the morning in their hotel. And uh, that was the beginning uh, of the public awareness of what had been a years-long investigation into, into corruption in soccer. And it um, uh, became, for those of you who remember back then, a massive, massive international news story. It was a different era. There was, there was less news breaking every day. And for two weeks, there wasn't hardly anything talked about in the media anywhere, except for the, the FIFA scandal, as it quickly became called. It led to, uh, in addition to the arrests, um, all kinds of resignations and changes, and the president of FIFA at the time, Seth Blatter, who'd been in the job for decades, for, why not decades, but for, well, let me tell you, he'd been in the, de- in the job for 17 years, I believe, at that point. Um, he resigned, even though he had otherwise said he never would, and, and lots of heads started rolling everywhere. And in the wake of all that, one of the things we also learned was that the DOJ had made its case in a big, big part on of Chuck Blazer. It turned out that Chuck Blazer had been an informant for the government and had been wearing a wire for the Feds, and um, and had and had really helped bring the case together. And suddenly, my article from a year earlier had currency again. People were desperate to read it, and I uh, started getting inquiries from people who wanted to know if uh, if I had the film rights, if that could if I could do a TV show in this, if they could do something with it. And uh, uh, I quickly. Got an agent, talked to a few people, and within a couple weeks, I'd written a book proposal, sold a book, and then and then soon after that, I actually sold the movie rights as well. So um, a lot of things happened real fast.
0: A lot of things. That was very very quick. That moved. <laughs> so um, th- this book. How long did it take you to write it with all the information you already had?
1: Well, it turned out the information I had was only like a a, a, a tiny a tiny chunk of what uh, I needed to get. Um, it was just a piece of it um, and really it was only the beginning. So I wasn't any way prepared to begin to write the book at that point. I was just prepared to think about it. Um, I signed the book deal in the summer of 2015 with the expectation of finishing a draft of the book by the end of 2016, about a year, just over, about around a year and a half to send her. Um, and that didn't happen. i ended end up printing the first draft of the book in, in the summer of 2017. So about – Seven or eight months uh, after my original deadline, I got in the first draft of the book. Um, to defend my myself, uh, I didn't really have a chance to dive into the book um, completely until the beginning of twenty until the beginning of twenty sixteen because of more commitments I already had and this big article, this series of projects, project articles I've been working on already. Um, but I worked intensively on in the book and the reporting starting in about February twenty sixteen until the final draft of the book was finished about February, 2018. So from, from soup to nuts, two years.
0: Okay. Wow. That's a, um, it's, that's, that's a lot of dedication and a lot of throwing yourself into this. Cause I imagine this can be a very intense thing to write about, you know, how the U S blew the whistle, so to speak on the world's biggest scandal. Like the, the, when you think about sports scandals around the world, this and the match fixing thing in uh, soccer. <laughs> soccer has a bunch of scandals in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this and the match fixing thing are like the two biggest ones you can think of. So to, to be able to write a book about this with a little bit of information is, is just incredible. And I can't wait to read it because I am obviously going to buy this because I'm an American soccer journalist. So, <laughs> um,. You and, you and I were talking again, uh, again before the before the show started. You don't have too much experience in soccer, so to speak. Um, so how difficult was that factor in it?
1: Well, I mean, you know, there's there's a couple of philosophies of journalism um, about that kind of situation. And some people say, well, you know, you, if you don't have the inside knowledge, you're going to write something that doesn't speak, you know, uh, doesn't really speak authoritatively about a topic. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. But there's a counterintuitive argument the counterintuitive argument is sort of you know the best people to write to write a story about a big topic that everyone has opinions on is someone who's sort of an outsider because those people are going to bring perspectives that um that you know other people might not have and um uh and they're going to look at it from new ways they're going to question things that, that people who are insiders might not even think to question um and uh well for obvious personal reasons, I'm going to say that that was the right way to go on this. But I, <laughs> but I will say that, you know, um, my relative lack of knowledge of the intricacies of the sport um, presented me with a, with a, with a challenge, which was, was I going to do the best job I could in this book or not? And if the answer was yes, which tends to be my way of doing things, then I really had to go in full bore, which meant a lot of travel of many, many conversations and a lot of reading. Um, so I, I, I worked pretty hard to try to come up to speed and to try to um, understand the history and the, and the issues as well as possible um, and also, um, uh, you know, to, to find new information that wasn't just new to me but new to people who even followed the sport and followed the corruption scandal. So, um, you know, hopefully I delivered on that.
0: It's, it's definitely an interesting point you bring about not having the same perspective as someone who's been in it for, for as long as some supporters have um, you you didn't bring in any of the biases that some of these people might have as well so I, how often in your journalistic career do you go into something that you're not extremely knowledgeable in is it, is it often
1: I would say almost all the time that's kind of it's what I, that's it's a nice shorthand way of describing what journalism should be I mean journalists are sort of perpetual students who come into topics and try to learn as much as they could or can, and then relay that information to the reading public. That's the job. And so, you know, I actually, when I do it, when I do a project or a big article, um, I've noticed a distinct curve, a moment when, um, when I, when I suddenly realize that, that I know as much as the people I'm interviewing. It never is that way in the beginning. I start doing interviews, and I, and, and I lose fifty percent of what they're telling me, or more. And I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know the topic, and I'm overwhelmed. Um, but I keep doing more and more interviews, learning more and more, and eventually I get to the point where suddenly I, the, the table turns, and I start. I'm the one who's telling the source more than they're telling me. If that makes sense. I'll interview someone, and I'll say, "Oh yeah, that reminds me of this, and that reminds me of that." And that person will say, "I've never heard of that. Really." And when, when I start hearing that kind of feedback from a source, when I start hearing the feedback of them saying, wow, really? That's when I know that I've learned enough to write. And that's when I start to write.
0: So how is a book different from your your previous endeavors? Because I imagine uh, you you throw yourself into this book, and you mentioned it for two years. Um, yeah. h- how has it been different and, and challenging?
1: Well, book uh – Book is a, is a challenge in a lot of ways. It's a book in um, it's a challenge in, in, in terms of the writing. You know, it's you you're writing a heck of a lot more words than you do for even a long long article. So you know, um, uh, my Chuck Blazer profile was about nine thousand words. My first draft of this book, not my last draft, my first draft was about one hundred and sixty thousand words. So you know, eighteen times longer than the than the longest article I'd ever written to date prior to that. So it's a, it's a heck of a lot of writing and then there's a lot of editing and you've got to figure out how to do something that you haven't done before, which is to tell a story with with a beginning, middle, and the end and not just, um, and not just sort of a news report, which doesn't really have that kind of structure necessarily. Um, it's got much more of, of, you know, trying to prove one point or trying to illustrate one point as opposed to a more complex topic. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of writing and editing challenges there, um, and then there's also a lot of kind of reporting challenges because you've got to learn a lot more about a lot more, um, and, uh, and organize that keep track of it and know how to access that in a way that doesn't just feel like an information dump. So it's, it's everyone who says to you, writing a book's really hard is not exaggerating. It's really hard. <laughs> um, but it's also really rewarding. There's something, there's something really gratifying about being able to um, spend so much time with the subject and, and know so much about so many different aspects of it um you know the glories of the cutting room floor all the all the stuff that isn't in the book but that i know um that sort of informs the book is is also i think a testament to how much one spends on topic you know if you if you can sort of feel like you've thrown an entire second book out on your edits then you've then you really probably have begun to know enough to feel comfortable with with what you did what did survive the editing
0: so I've never been involved in an investigative journalistic situation, so, um, or, or even written a book. I think I think it's pretty obvious given my age and the things I'm trying to accomplish now. But how do you go about getting this information? That's probably the mo- one of the mo- more interesting things that I um, I tend to focus on. How do you get this information, um, and and where's where is it all funneling from?
1: So this, is a, this, this particular story is a story of a U.S. criminal investigation, right? So I can tell you some of the specifics of, uh, of how I've got it in this case, and there's some sort of more general things as well. But this, on the, on the, I think on the general sense, what I would say is that you want to think about what the topic is you're writing about and where, um, you know, and, and what sorts of information naturally would be available for that sort of topic. So if you're writing about publicly traded companies, and by the way, doc, documents are a really important part of what I do. So if you're thinking about publicly traded companies, these are companies that have stock that trades in the stock market, well you're going to you're going to think whether well, there's information about companies because they're public stock and so if I can just look up that information that's going to help me um, that's going to help me you know, understand what it is and what some of the issues are and there's lots of information about public traded companies. Uh, if you're looking at government you know, what, what somebody in Congress is doing well, there's lots of information about what how they vote, who they are, you know, There's, lots, there's there, who gives them money for their campaigns. There's lots of public information available about um, where people in Congress get, you know, what they do and where they get their money. In this case, it's a criminal case. Uh, it's the U.S. United States of America versus all these people. And so the first place to go is to court and to pull all the documents that you can in the court case and read them and get a sense uh of what's in there and by, by reading in, what in this case are literally I don't know what the doc is up to now but hundreds if not a couple thousand documents um, you get a sense of <coughs> the larger outline of the whole case who some of the key characters are who some of the key people behind the scenes are and um, and that can be really great, great guideline towards what your next steps might be which is going to be trying to interview people so then you're going to start talking to people um, and interviewing them about the case itself and, um, in a larger sense, um, soccer.
0: So, you've gone about this and you've written this book. What have, what's have what been the most enlightening thing that you've gotten and, and that you've talked about in the book?
1: Enlightening, how do you mean?
0: Uh, like, enlightening on on the level that it kind of brings this case together and it kind of explains why this whole thing, why the U S was involved in this entire thing.
1: I mean, I, I, mean, I know why the U S was involved, but I don't know if that answers, you know, the question is of for of what, you know, what it all means. Right. I mean, the reason the U S is involved, um, despite a lot of conspiracy theories that are out there, um, is because, uh, some FBI agents um, met someone who gave them a tip, and they thought that was interesting, and they pursued it. And, um, and then the IRS helped them actually get Chuck Blazer. And once they had Chuck Blazer, um, they, had, they had a humdinger of a case, as they might say, and they had, they had lots of opportunities to keep going, and there was lots of support. and um, they, their, their good law enforcement efforts were rewarded with support and more encouragement, and they just kept going. So that's the mechanics of how a case like this happens. But the larger meaning of it um you know is is sort of thinking of where does this fit into the way that the u.s fights discuss crime and i don't specifically mean soccer crime but i mean sort of internet trends what they may call transnational international uh, uh corruption and money laundering and um, understanding sort of the way that that's become a big part of of what the u.s justice system has done over the last eight to ten years helps understand where this this case fits into that um You know, I think another way of looking at the question you're asking me is, was there sort of a moment where it all all clicked together and made sense? And, you know, I think um, uh, I worked hard to try to tell the story as if it were through the eyes of the investigators in the case. And and these people coming in without knowing necessarily that much about the mechanics of the business of soccer and then coming around to understanding it. And I I kind of think the same way. There was a few moments when I was reading um, documents, particularly the indictment in the case, where, which is the original indictment, was like something like 160 pages long, which is very large for a uh, indictment, in very complicated with lots of details. Reading through that a few times, I thought, "Ah, well, that's how it works. That's how how the business of soccer works, and how and how it's intimately tied with the corruption of soccer." Um, so, you know, I think as a document itself, as something that speaks to. Both how the Justice Department sees these kind of cases and how it came to learn soccer behaves that indictment, um, which is available here and there online, not it's a public document, is an is an incredible read.
0: Where can people find the book, and and when's it come out?
1: So the book's being published. Um, I'm very fortunate in a couple in a couple different countries at the same time. But here in the U.S., where I'm sure your prime audience is, it's uh, it's going to be available. Um, uh, it's being published by Simon and Schuster and it's going to be available on at, uh, online at amazon.com or barnes and or in, in your favorite local independent bookstore or uh, Barnes and Noble outlet or any other uh, big book purveyor in the country should have copies. Um, that's the, that's one place to get the actual physical book. You can also buy a digital copy of the book online. Um, and there's going to be an audio book as well. Um, and that audiobook book uh, should be available at the same time. And you can get that at Audible or uh, through iTunes or uh, through Amazon. Um, and uh, that's all going to come available simultaneously on June 12th. Um, so um, that's, that's when that's coming out. June 12th, of course, is two days before the first world cup match. Um, and um, so we're hoping that, that that's a time when people will be thinking about soccer and be interested in, in picking up a, a book about the sock about soccer and about some of the things that have affected it in recent years. Um, So that's sort of the thought behind the timing of that. Um, And as I mentioned, it's international as well. The book's available in the United Kingdom on June 14th. Um, It's going to be available in in Latin America and Brazil, Portugal, Holland, um, Japan, Italy, maybe a few other places as well. So um, really fortunate that hopefully a large swath of the soccer-loving world is going to get a crack at this.
0: As you're now an author, I want to know if you've heard the myth, or even confirm it as not a myth, that books are best um, sold when they're released on a Tuesday. Is that something you've heard?
1: Huh. I'll tell you what, I've never heard that before, but I will tell you that my book is being released on a Tuesday, and my uh, publishing house explain to me that that's because they release all their books on Tuesdays.
0: Hey, it's a very real thing. I, I mean, John Green, I've heard John Green talk about it a couple times about all of his books being released on Tuesdays and it's a growing myth, but I don't really think it's a myth. I think it's more of a marketing point, but it's more <coughs> fun to call it a myth.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wonder what that, I'm, I'm trying to think it through in real time. Maybe, um, Maybe because Tuesday is sort of a, you know, it's not the first day of the week, so people sort of clear their inboxes out or clear their stuff out, and people don't go out and party too much on Tuesday night, so maybe it's a good night to go to the bookstore um, I, or to buy a book. I wonder I what the, the, the human psychology is behind that being a good day. I know so there's a lot
0: of, lot of research and a lot of money spent on that,
1: <laughs> for sure. I'm sure, I'm sure about <laughs> that. I'm sure people <laughs> want to get to the bottom of that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um but you know i'm I'm hoping i'm hoping that my tuesday audience would you know obviously go for it i think you know um inevitably with the world cup a lot of soccer books come out uh you know i know you're a fan of men in blazers and they have a book that recently came out and uh, my uh colleague and friend grant wall has had a book that just come out on soccer but i think my book stands out as being different than the other books because um it's a soccer book but it's also a, a true crime book and a Investigative book in a non in a nonfiction narrative, so it's a little bit different than the others. I think also it's it's really um, the only true inside account of how this case was made. So people who are curious to know what the heck happened in soccer and why all these guys ended up arrested in in jail um, uh, will get their answers and, and and will and will feel having read this that they that they understood something that might have been a little confusing before.
0: Little tease right there. But uh, I, I want to know: Did you come up with the name, or did some soccer creative person come up with the red card because I, I, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant.
1: Oh, I'm glad you like it. Well, so I sold the book under a different name. Um, and, uh, and I worked with that name for a while and was for, sort of wedded to it. Um, uh, but in the end, my editor, uh, Simon Schuster, wasn't a big fan, didn't love it and sort of pushing me to find a different name. And that was a bit of a struggle for me. Um, I had trouble coming up with, um, with the right name, and we tried a million different things. So the original name for the book was "Houses of Deceit," um, and uh, that's a that's a quote I got actually from a Bible passage. I'm not a particularly devout person, but when I was writing the proposal for the book, um, I was sort of trying to come up with a title and uh, an author who I admire very much, uh, uh, who does true crime. Well, does white collar true crime, which is sort of the genre, is by the name of Jim Stewart, James B. Stewart. And he has a a real classic called Den of Thieves. Den of Thieves is about insider stock trading in the 1980s. And that title, Den of Thieves, comes from a Bible verse. And so I thought, well, I'll just crib from the master and started looking for Bible verses. And I found this really, what I thought, apropos Bible verse, um, that mentions the phrase houses of deceit. And so I sold it on that. And there seemed seemed interesting excitement. Um, I sold a movie option based on that same title as well. and, uh, but my editor didn't like it. so I started coming up with other ones. I tried throwing everything at the wall, nothing stuck. And, uh, and I proposed, um, Red Card at one point, um, because it came out of a press conference. There was a press conference that was held, um, it was either the, there was a press conference in, in May 2015, right when these arrests happened. And there was all these different important people in the government speaking at the press conference. And I think this one of the last speakers was the head of, IRS his uh, criminal investigations division. And he mentioned something about giving FIFA a red card or something like that. And I thought, well, that's it. When I read that in a, in actually, I, I think I watched the press press conference on YouTube. And when I heard him say that, I thought, well, that's perfect. And I pitched that to my editor and at first he wasn't sure about it, but I, I brought him around and I'm really glad about it now.
0: Yeah. And the bright red book cover will catch a lot of eyes at your local Barnes and Noble.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping. It's funny, you know, I'm looking online and there's not that many books with the bright red cover. So that's, that seems like an edge. It seems like a big a day glow, uh color is going to be key. So I'm hoping they, uh, they, they bite on that. And, you know, it's funny, I, don't, I can't imagine what the cover would look like if we hadn't come up with that title. You know, who knows what does what the Houses of Deceit cover even look like? <laughs> so um, so it, it gave us a guideline. It's funny. I mentioned the foreign territories, so where I've sold the book in the Netherlands they bought it and for every other territory around the world they just translated red card into their language but for some reason the Dutch wanted something else and so they went with this title but they've changed it again um, that was closer to Houses of Deceit and because of that the art they have is a generic looking grass pitch with a soccer stadium behind it uh, and it doesn't it's alright but it doesn't really doesn't scream out at you like that bright red does so I think I'm really happy. I'm lucky that they finally agreed on
0: that. Yeah, it's, I'm just happy you didn't go yellow card. That, that would be, <laughs> yeah.
1: That's too ambiguous, right? It's not a you know, yellow card you're still playing. But clearly what happened to these people is a red card, right? These right. You know, these people were doing bad things. They were paying and receiving bribes, and their, and their punishment was to get kicked out of that.
0: Yeah, they were ejected from, like, freedom. Right. They're, they're in jail for, I don't know, forever, but they're in jail for a long time. <laughs> And and, and even set bladders at like the, even set bladders like at the jail where they can still play golf. So it's really not really a red well, he, card.
1: He well, it's a red card. It's a, it's you getting you thrown out of the. Sport, yeah, right?
0: you're getting thrown. Yeah. yeah, so like that's a red card with no suspension. Essentially, <laughs> he just he yeah. got thrown out of it. But um, man, I appreciate you making the time. Uh, thank you so, so much for, uh, for coming on the show and June 12th. You can find it on all, uh, amazon.com, any bookstore, Barnes and Noble. It'll be available overseas for our, our European audience on June 14th. Um, Ken, I, I appreciate you, man.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on and I hope we get a chance to talk again sometime.